Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm very excited to be joined once again by Jay Warner Wallace. He is a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective and a very extremely popular national speaker, best-selling author. He's also an adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola and a faculty member at Summit Ministries. Jim, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I just want to minister to you today. I hear you're exhausted, and I want to try to make this as easy as I can for you today. Well, you're a good man. I just, it's been just been crazy. You know, we have a new book getting ready to come out in September and you think, well, it's April, right? Like this is still pretty far ahead of yeah. it, but it's right about now is when all the editing stuff has to be done. And it's just been like, I just have a, I'm so glad I actually had, I carved this hour out ahead of my calendar. So oh, good. I'm, I'm good to go. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Is there some process of the writing and the editing and everything else that is more arduous than others? Um, I think for, for, for me, a lot of it is that I try to illustrate the books so um, they're visual. And that means this book has got 400 illustrations. And part of that problem is, so of course, the illustrations are related to the text. If you make a mistake in the text or you think you want to go in a slightly different direction, it's going to change whether you have that illustration or what kind of an illustration you need. And, and if you ship like an idiot, include uh, text in the illustration. Well, then you're probably got to change a lot of your illustrations because the, the text is going to change, right? Yeah. As part of the editing process, so that I, 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 at some point I have to learn not to do the illustrations. <laughs> that's 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 the key. If I didn't illustrate this book, it would be so much easier. Yeah. Now, when you say illustrate, what does that mean? Well, it means that I I try to I was t- I'm publishing with Zondervan, which, which is a great publisher, and I asked them for a year to allow me to create the visual presentations for the gotcha. book before I started writing. Mm-hmm. So I can present this visually. You've seen how I do that. In a, it's in a brilliant. Of, yeah, so the idea is to, how do I make this visual? Well, then, of course, you have to be able to draw these out in ink so that they can be transferable onto the pages of a book. Right. So you end up with, like, I had 400 illustrations. It took me about three and a half months to illustrate the book. You're the artist? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's one of the good things about having a degree in design and architecture. That was what I did before I was a police officer. So, I, I, I yes, I can draw. So you play, do you play the accordion, too? Uh, you give me one. Try. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing you can't do. All right, I want to touch on a couple of subjects, and I also just want to uh, give yeah. you as much time to just uh, relax this hour as possible. Um, a tired uh, Jim Wallace is, uh, a, is is a perfect guest in my book, honestly, and I mean that. Well, I'm glad to be with you. You know yeah. how I feel about you. Well, thank you, Jim. So your dad was a police officer. You were obviously for many, many years, yep. and now your son Jimmy's one too. And boy, yeah. I really like his videos. I've been watching oh, some so of them. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah, he's been. He he. Had, I never asked him to do those things. He just decides he's. I got. I'm sitting on two more. I got to publish next two weeks. Yeah. So yeah. He's been good at that. So sure. everyone, head to coldcasechristianity.com. You can see what we're talking about. So give me your uh, reflections over the last week, particularly here in the state of Minnesota. 
Well, I mean, I think that what's what's encouraging about it is, well, first of all, we all saw what happened, and there's no way you can you can sugarcoat that. I mean, I know that this everything has tends to be politicized, so you get one side takes one position and one side takes the other, and there's finger pointing in both directions. But you know, from my perspective, I mean, like that this is this is was it was great about it is the jury got to see exactly what happened. This was captured as well as any event could be captured on video. Uh, from a couple different angles, so it's not as though it wasn't pretty clear to everyone what happened. So, so I'm, I'm, I think it's it's powerful. The system is designed, and it's not a perfect system. I mean, we know that. I mean, there are people who are, get falsely uh, convicted, but but for the most part, the system is about as good as you could hope for. And it's not as though a judge determined, so or, or a political appointee determined, or a, a mayor in the town determined. No, twelve people determined whether or not this. Uh, Derek Chauvin was was guilty of this, and it was a, a, a really a pretty decent cross section of the community and his peers that decided this. Now, now you could argue, could some things have been maybe better to protect the um, the system, the system of, of of the trial? I think so. I mean, I, I would have sequestered. This is not like it's that long of a trial. I mean, we've had homicide trials that were were longer than I've been involved in cases that were longer than this one. So, so I honestly think you you probably could have sequestered the the jury and then you would have removed any concerns about whether or not they were worried about the the pushback that the community might have felt if they you know rendered a verdict they weren't happy with so I mean I, get, I, I my only con- concern would be that yeah you could have been you could have eliminated even any question about whether or not the the verdict was fairly reached by simply sequestering the jury but but aside from that I, I really think that the that the, the trial shows that it's still possible. The system still can provide justice and, and come to a conclusion on on a case. And you might look at it and say, whoever's listening to this might say, well, yeah, but I'm not happy with how this turned out for this reason or for that reason. But what's great about the system is that it's got so many steps in terms of the jury selection process. You know, I don't know if you listen to them talk about when they, when they uh, ask the jurors to affirm their decision. You know, it starts off with juror number four. Does this your decision? Yes. Juror number twelve. What are, what are they doing there? Well, it turns out that there were over a hundred probably jurors that from those jurors, those hundred or so people, um, twelve were selected, and that's why they'll get to like you know, juror number seventy-eight. Well, there's not seventy-eight jurors on the jury. That was seventy-eight from the original jury pool. Mm-hmm. So they pulled. So so you have oh, the ability to you. select out from the larger jury pool the twelve that you want. In both sides, defense and prosecutors get to help make those decisions of that voir dire process. In other words, there's a system in place that that it, although it's not perfect. Um, and so I was encouraged that that there was a sense in which, well, you know, we, we, we have a trial process, and he went through that trial process. It does appear, after you watch um, how it turned out, that he was well represented. Um, he'll have a, a chance for appeal. There's, the, the things are in place, and, and it turns out it renders a verdict. And, and whether you like the verdict or don't like the verdict, um, you have to recognize that the system is really pretty decent, and it does its job. Um, and it allowed for a verdict to be rendered here, and it's kind of hard to argue, unless you're going to say they all 12 felt unduly pressured by the situation there in Minnesota. Again, I think you could have eliminated that problem if you just would have sequestered the jury. You mm-hmm. have a better chance of not letting them see anything that might sway their opinion in the very, you know. But I think, look, as you watch the video, whether you're a police officer or not, this is this was really well um, documented in terms of what happened. And so I don't know that there's many questions left to be answered. Mm-hmm. 
I could ask a couple more police-oriented yeah. questions, are police trained to shoot to wound? No. Now, look, here's the problem. Uh, we have to decide what we want police to do. Um, uh, it's, it's, look, I wish in panic situations where you're pulling your gun out and you are shooting because you think if I don't shoot, someone an innocent is going to die or I am going. That's when you get involved in shootings. You pull the gun out because you think, hey, if I don't have this level of force, either I'm going to end up dead or an innocent is going to end up dead. Can, am I allowed to use deadly force to protect the life of an innocent? Well, I, that, that's where we've, we've decided as a, as a – by the way, that's a biblical principle, by the way. But we've decided as a culture that, yeah, we want to be able to use – we want officers to use deadly force to either protect their own life or to protect the life of an innocent. Does that mean then that I have to be injured? I have to take a round first before I can shoot a round? The problem with that, of course, is that the first round I take is a round of the forehead. I won't get a chance to shoot the round back. So, so you, you, that more than likely, you're going to end up preemptively trying to stop what you think is an imminent attack. Now, we can decide that, you know what, we don't want that anymore. We, we do not even want you to preemptively – you're going to have to take a bullet before you can shoot back. Well, if that's where we are, then we need to decide as a, as a culture that that's where we are. But up to this point, we've been able to say, hey, you know, officers do not have to be mortally wounded before they can shoot back. Because, you know, you can, get a, you can take a round that will ultimately kill you. But it will take a while to do it. And, and so do I have to take that round, or can I act proactively to make sure I don't get shot? If I think he's got a gun and is about to shoot me, am I allowed to shoot? We've got to decide this as a culture. Is this something we're going to allow officers to do? Look, this is not – we're not reactive like firemen. You know, We wait for the fire, call us, we'll come out. You, you actually want us to patrol and proactively stop crime? How are we supposed to do that? I mean, it's, it's doable, but my question is, are, do you have a stomach for that? Mm-hmm. Because it's going to mean we're going to have to stop people before they commit a crime. Well, on the basis of what do you want us to stop them then? So we have to decide as a culture, do we still want police officers to work proactively to stop crime before it occurs? That's why there are no firefighter patrolmen. You know, There's not a patrol for fire. There's mm-hmm. a patrol for law because you want us in the neighborhoods – you want us to stop them before they steal your car. But what if I try to stop them and he runs from us? What if he turns and he's got a crowbar and he's – what if I end up shooting this guy? Will you support my, my decision? Because if you're not – I understand if you're not going to. Then we just all need to know that, and then police officers will stop doing anything proactively. Mm-hmm. But we have to decide as a culture. Do yeah. Is that what we want or not? Yeah. And that's the problem with it is that, 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 that if you want us to stop crime before it occurs, that's, that's risky business. And that's risky business in terms of do you trust our judgment in that? All right, well, on the basis of what would we even stop somebody? You follow what I mean? No, yeah. It's very easy to oh. wait for the car to be stolen or wait for the robbery to occur or wait for the murder to occur, and we can come and take a report. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, that, that's, if that's where we're headed, okay, we have to decide as a culture is that where we're headed. Because if you eliminate if, – if, 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 if it's all risk on the officer to act proactively like they have for generations, then I guarantee you officers will stop acting proactively. Yeah. And that's – I mean I, I, I don't know. Look, I, the argument is going to be made academically whether or not that makes for a better society or not. And I'm not here to argue that. Yeah, I'm just right. saying if we're going to decide this, then just understand that we're going to have to – the officers will – respect your wishes on that, and they will either act proactively or they won't. 
And that's going to be up to us as each group decides this. Awesome. i got two more quick questions, but we'll do it after the break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. Coldcasechristianity.com. Be right back. My guest is Jay Warner Wallace. Extremely cool resume. Just go to coldcasechristianity.com. Save me time and energy. All right, Jim, let's say uh, you are uh, at the break room at the police station with a half a dozen other officers talking, and you're making comments to one another on a colleague that pulled her firearm instead of her taser. What are you saying to each other? He's been on the, well, on the you know, force for 19 yeah. years. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. This is a good question, and I'm going to be honest with you. I've not seen the video that everyone's been talking about. I just have been so silly busy on yeah, this yeah. Um, next book, uh, so I haven't seen uh, what we do on our side and our, where we are. And that's a, I, I think this is probably true for a lot of agencies: is that you you don't have your tasers, your non-firing hand. So if you're right-handed, you have a holster on your right side, which is your handgun, mm-hmm. and you have a taser on your left hip, usually down on your leg, strapped to your leg. So that you train to use a different firing uh, kind of muscle memory. So, so you're going to always be firing from the right side. With your, if you're right-handed, you'll be firing with your primary weapon on the right. And even tasers are designed to try to. We try to design them to at least ours do not feel like the, the gun. You know, it's shaped differently. It's a different color. You know, the, every effort is made so that you won't mistake these two. And the reason why we offhand the taser on that side is because people honestly make mistakes in a panic. You know, you don't you, you train so much with your firearm. You, you're going to train more with your firearm than you are with your taser, probably. Um, so, so you, that that you're developing muscle memory, and God forbid you want to develop the same muscle memory for both. Because let's, let's face it, they are similar into how they. For example, if every taser was a rifle that had to be like carried slung, okay. <laughs> Well, then your your muscle memory is different for 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 shouldering a rifle than right. it is for pulling your your handgun out. The problem was that the taser right now that we use is it has a similar muscle memory to the handgun. So it's it's you know I I don't know how what officer would say in a in, I know what I would I'd be like I never mock these kinds of things because I I know that that I you think you're so well prepared. And you train and train and train. For those few times, you're going to have to use or even think about using deadly force. Now, you go to these classes, right, where you're grappling and you're learning how to grapple, learning how to grapple. But to be honest with you, you're not doing that every shift. You're not – and unless you do it every shift, you don't have any muscle memory for it. So you think, well, yeah, I've learned how to use this pressure hold in such a way that it's, you know, it applies the least amount of pressure. And, yeah, but you, you did that once six months ago in training. You, you don't use it every shift. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and now you haven't had a chance to use it in months. And do you, how good do you think you're going to be? at it when you for you know apply this move that you're trying to remember from a class six months ago and you've got three seconds to remember it it's just not an effective way right so it's all going to depend on how the agency i don't know what side they carry on i don't know what that looks like for them it'll be different for every agency mm-hmm. but it doesn't surprise me that 
I mean, I mean, it's I just don't know how she slings that if it's slung on the same side. If it's slung, I just don't know. Yeah. Uh, without that, it's hard to make a value judgment on that. But but I I never usually would mock somebody anyway because I'm just telling you, uh, most officer-involved shootings require a large number of rounds fired because so few actually hit your target because you're in a panic and you could be a great target shooter and where you do that 30 you know 25 yards 15 yards 10 yards 3 yards you're great right on the range but the range didn't require you now we we start to do some of this now but it's not usually going to require you to run for you know, 6 minutes first climb three sets of stairs and now try in that situation which approximates the fight you just got in how do you shoot accurately when you're exhausted right you know and and you're also being shot at or you're afraid that you're going to be shot at it just changes the dynamic you're no longer target shooting mm-hmm. and and we're just not good at it i mean no one's good at it really and so in the end um you know you think oh what do you need all those magazines what do you need all that high capacity magazine well it's not so we can put more bullets into the target it's so we can get one into the target because we're going to probably miss with all the other ones. Hmm. And this is just the nature of, of, you know, real shootings are sloppy and they're messy because so many factors are at place and few people are calm in that setting. So, so a lot of that is, is, you know, the reality, this is why I say the job is such a, uh, the more I look at this, I'll be honest with you. You know, I, my dad is with Jim Wallace and he, I was born in his academy and then as Jim Wallace, I went into the police department, and my son was born in my academy, and his name is Jim Wallace, and now he's doing the same job. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think I want another generation of Jim Wallace's doing the job, mm-hmm. if I'm honest with you. I just don't know that we it's, – it's becoming so – it's not an easy job. It's a super difficult job with split-second reactions that will be judged. You'll make that decision in less than three seconds and live with it for the rest of your life. And and you can face situations like that repeatedly. So what well, – I, I mean this is why you see – I'd love to know what the statistics are for marriages and law enforcement. I suspect they're not good. I'd love to know what the alcohol use and, and I'd just love to see what the longevity is for retired officers. I bet you it's not good just because I, I think it's a terrible job. And there's uh, – why would anybody want to do it anymore? I mean it's one thing to do a terrible job. Everyone says, hey, well, thank you for your service. You know, to be honest, for a lot of us, that's enough. Mm-hmm. When someone says thank you for your service, if the if the if the thing you're going to hear though is we need to defund you guys, yeah. Well, then it's like okay, then why am I? Why am I? Do you realize this does not pay much? Okay, it's not <laughs> like you're going to do this uh, because you're you know it's either this or I was going to be an electrical engineer. Well, trust me, if that's the case, go be an electrical engineer. You make a lot more money, and there won't be the kind of risk you're going to put yourself in front of. Most people are doing this because they feel like it's a calling, and at some point, someone's going to say, "Thank you for your service." Right. And so, and if, and if that's if that is no longer part of the dynamic, I just don't know. I mean, a lot of us are going to feel like we're called to do it anyway. Um, but as I watch the, the climate, and again, it all comes back to that first thing we talked about. Do we want officers to be preemptive? Because I'll tell you what, the best way to avoid accidentally shooting somebody in a situation is to just wait about 10 more minutes before you try to arrive. And then you won't have to, anybody to deal with. Just be taking a report. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, is that we are we're in a rescue mode. It's I don't know anything about that officer who accidentally shot with the with the uh, hand okay. instead of the taser. I know nothing about her. Okay. 
But I doubt that she got up that day thinking, I'm looking for somebody to kill tonight. Oh, for sure she didn't, yeah. Right, and so you get out there, and suddenly your entire life has changed. You know, think about it. If I'm an, an engineer and I make a mistake, bad things can happen. But if I'm a, a police officer and make a mistake like this, I might lose my liberty. I might lose – I might be put in jail for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's the case in every one of these because sometimes you, there are things that – there's a certain amount of either ne- negligence or, as we've seen, malice, right? But I don't know what her situation is. I'm just saying that we better have a category for, oh, my gosh, I made a terrible mistake. If we don't have a category for that, um, we're going to have problems going forward. Mm-hmm. Jim, how many years were you in law enforcement? Twenty-five. Twenty-five. In those 25 years, was there a, a f- officer that you worked with that ended up going to prison? No. Okay. No. So, so that's, a, that's the other funny thing, too, about this is that, that, that I know that – look, well, I saw what you guys saw. We saw what everyone saw right. on that video of, of Chauvin. So we know that people do stupid things. We see this all the time, right? But most of us who work in this profession are like that seems otherworldly in some ways because we haven't experienced that in a firsthand way. Right, and so we're like going, yeah, and that's what's so uh, um, that's what's so hard, I think, for people to swallow. It's it's not like we're out here and we're going, yeah, like like five percent of my agency is that stupid too. Well, you go your whole career, you don't see that happen where you're working, and then you see it happen somewhere else, and then everyone says you're all like that. Like, going, I'm not kidding. I've been here, I've been a part of this agency for sixty years. You know, I was I grew up in this agency. I became a police officer here. I now I'm a chaplain, and I'm still involved in this agency. My son's been there for ten years. Mm-hmm. It's, do, do people do stupid things in our agency? Yeah, they do, uh, and people get fired. Uh, but in my career, uh, there wasn't a single person I'm looking. I'm thinking about that I can say I ever worked with who ended up getting fired. Yeah, my my question I was trying to lead to was as a police officer, what would it be like for uh, Derek Chauvin to be going to prison as a police officer. Uh, yeah, we were just, and my dad and I were just talking about. It. I'm sure they're going to isolate him. I mean, more than likely they're going to isolate him. Although, because so you're in Minnesota, so that's different. It depends on the state, right? But more than likely they're not going to put him in general population because if they did, he'd be at, he'd be at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll. So it really means he's probably going to be isolated for as long as he's there. And, and and I don't know. I don't see a scenario right now where it looks good in terms of sentencing for him. So I think he's probably going to be in jail the rest of his life. Wow, that's really tough. Well, and think about that. When I say the rest of his life, I think he's in his 40s now. Yeah, So 45. what I mean is, yeah, it doesn't take much to put you in there for the rest of your life. People don't live as long in jail as they live on the outside. And if you're in your 40s, it wouldn't take that much mm-hmm. to, to put you in for a long time. Yeah. So I want to take a little break, but when I come back, I want to change the subject completely. And I want to um, ask you about all kinds of things. I have uh, want to talk about the importance of discipleship. And I know as believers, if we're not actively involved in discipleship, we're missing a key component of our faith journey. Um, And if you have any questions you have for Jim, maybe you've been listening to the last half hour and you've got one other question, we'd take a question or two. Otherwise, I want to get back into uh, spiritual growth and development. Jim is an awesome uh, educator and teacher and trainer. And if you have any questions about discipleship as well, let me know what they are. 877-933- 2484. My guest is Jay Warner Wallace. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com. Be right back.
Glad to have Jim Wallace on the show. I'm excited about your new book coming out, Jim. I want to be on the top ten of people I get to interview on that on that book. Oh, well, you know, I'll be even talking about this with you. Yeah, <laughs> quite I'll, a bit. I'll, I'll make lots yeah, of noise. Sure. I'll make lots of noise. We'll get a lot of copies sold. Good. So, I um, it. Jesus said that you know I'm uh, go make disciples of all nations. What, what precisely is discipleship, and why is it so important? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because he could have just said, "Go make believers." Yeah. Um, but there's something. Be- Go get converts. Right, and and you know that's and I've, I struggle with this too. I, I think that the, the most important thing we can talk about is the gospel, 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 gospel. That's what changes everything, right? And yep. so in the end, I do a lot of apologetics where we're talking about the evidence. But to be to be honest, I'm just trying to clear barriers and clear obstacles so we can get to the most important thing, which is the gospel. It's not like my evidences are going to change anything. The power is in the gospel. But interestingly, like the core gospel, the minimal gospel, it can be affirmed by a lot of people because it hasn't really been defined, if you don't define it. In other words, when I was a church leader, I remember I was, I was going through the Apostles' Creed uh, with my congregation. And I realized at some point, you know, i got to do more than the Apostles' Creed. i got to do the Nicene Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed could be affirmed by Mormons. If you read through the Apostles' Creed, most Mormons would say, yep, 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 yep. And so it's it's something beyond just – like we start. We enter in into this relationship by our embracing with the gift that God has given us through the salvation of Jesus Christ, the gospel. But then we don't stop there. We, we keep on – even Paul says, you know, you, you, you're not to be drinking milk like little kids. You're supposed to be mature. You're supposed to actually go somewhere with this. You're supposed to grow in your understanding. Biblical literacy is at a shockingly low – but, you know, I mean, look, this is – you'll see, like, well, why is it that it seems like divorce rates are about the same for Christians as they are for non-Christians? Well, it's because of the way you're defining Christians. If you just say, well, what, are you a Christian? Then yes. Well, do you know anything about Christianity? Well, no. Okay, well, it turns out the people who actually know something about Christianity and actually attend a church and are part of a Christian community, their divorce rates are incredibly low, okay? So it turns out if you're just going to identify Christians as anybody who says, I'm a Christian, without asking them, have they been been discipled into even understanding what it is that Jesus said? If you're going to call yourself a Jesus follower, you probably need to know who it is you're following, right? What did he say? And so biblical literacy is part of being a disciple, right? It's, it's part of what it is to disciple somebody is to, you know, disciples are learners, right? Um, scholars, you know, the followers of Jesus who, you know, learn the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle style they require. That's kind of the definition of, of what we're talking about here, that that's that connection between doctrine and behavior. And that really is um, the definition of discipleship that I think Jesus was after. And Jim, isn't it safe to say that Discipleship is really joyful. It's not some ominous burden. It's really joyful. Yeah, I think that's what. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, it's it's if you want to have a life that is exciting and like hold on, <laughs> then this is the life you want to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I honestly think that there's there are probably a lot of people who feel like it's just the opposite. Like if I this is burdensome in some way, and that, maybe that's why Jesus takes the time to say that he's here to take your burdens. Because maybe he he also knows that those people who had been religious leading up to Jesus 
we're, we're carrying the weight of the the law, um, and it was burdensome. But that's not what this is about. Um, nothing will uh, be more. This is what's amazing about uh, people say it all the time that you it, the smallest uh, intellectual move will bring you into Christianity, and then you can spend the rest of your life in the deepest intellectual endeavors because there's so much to plumb. You know, there's so mm-hmm. much to mine in the uh, in the Christian worldview. Yeah. Question just came in, Jim. What does discipleship look like for people who have been Christians for a long time, and what does it look like, you know, for a new believer? I think for an, you know a new believer, discipleship would be pretty easy to understand. What about for people who have been Christians a long time? Well, I, I also think that at some point, I always talk about just people who are Christians online, right? Like, like I do a lot of classes with people who, who come to our website and they'll, they'll, they'll eventually take a class with me somewhere and I'll, I'll encourage them at the end. Okay, look, at some point you need to move from being content consumers to being content creators, right? Like that's the next step. Like in leadership, the ultimate step of leadership is to replace yourself by raising up and training another leader. And the same thing I think is true in discipleship. You may feel like, well, I've been studying the Bible for 25 years. Well, now the next step for you is to train, is to stop being a a content consumer, but to be a content creator. In other words, find somebody. This is why discipleship moves in both directions. Right? Like all of us need to be discipled by somebody and need to find somebody that we can disciple because there's somebody. You know, nothing teaches you more about a topic than your requirement of having to teach it. So if I said, That's hey, so true. I need you to teach uh, Romans 1 uh, <laughs> next week, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that would put you in a spot, right? Like totally. you'd have to know a lot about So now suddenly you are digging through stuff that you, you're going to discover stuff in Romans 1 that you never looked at before, never thought about before, and you've been a Christian for years. Well, why? Because now you have to teach it. And now you get to get ready. So I think any effort, if you're wondering, well, what does it look like for me now? Well, then start discipling somebody. Yeah. And what you're going to find is you're going to raise your bar first so you can lead somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of it is that for older folks that have been a Christian for a long time, now is the time for you to do something with it. Mm-hmm. What is the connection between doctrine and behavior? Well, let's let's face it. Uh, we, we Typically, we we kind of like think, well, if I know a bunch of stuff. You know, Robbie knew a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I hate to say it, but right. nobody, probably he epitomized of how much you could jam into one human brain. Okay? <laughs> right. One human mind. I mean, Robbie knew all kinds of stuff. But the question is, you know, it, it turns out that, 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 that ought, there ought to be an outcome or um, fruit. You know, I'm not big on this this particular verse because I think it can also be misleading. But when Jesus talked about you will know them. He said, you're going to know them by what? Well, by their fruit. And that's not going to be more than just, you're going to know them by, by, by you, because you're going to give them a quiz, theological quiz, and they're going to be able to answer 85%. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're going to know them because it turns out that once you accept this, these truths, it is life-changing, and it results in a changed life. And if I'm not seeing a changed life, then I'm kind of wondering if you got the whole, if you've been studying what it is that Jesus has been saying. So there's a combination. Granted, I could have a change. I could have a good. I could be a good person though, without even understanding anything about Jesus. I just can't ground it well. In other words, you know people who are not believers, who who are delightful people that you, at least on outwardly, you would say, "Wow, I wish I could behave that well." And I'm the Christian. I know Mormons who outperform Christians. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
So the question then becomes, but you have to have both. There has to be a connection. And by the way, Mormons will always say, how do you know that you're really a Christian? It's by their fruit, and we have great fruit. And that's true. They do have great fruit. But by the way, there's a difference, though, because if you are saved by what you do, then don't be surprised that people who think they're saved by their behavior behave better than you. They think they're being saved by that behavior. Our problem is is we have to make sure that we uh, appreciate what it is Jesus did for us to the point that our response is a changed life. We're not doing this because we think it's going to get us saved. We're already saved. We're doing it because we can't believe what's been done for us. And we're just responding out of joy for what's been done to us, and that results in a changed life. It's a life of gratitude. Like, like how could I not do this for others? I remember when I first wrote the first book, Cold Case, I asked uh, Lee Strobel if he would be willing to write an endorsement. The first thing he said was, well, heck, I'll write the the forward for you. And I thought, right away, I thought, if I ever get a chance— I want to do that for somebody else. I want to be that gracious. In other words, I was so grateful for what Lee Strobel did for me that it resulted in a change of attitude in which I wanted to do the same kind of thing for somebody else at some point. Well, look, look what God's done for you. Okay, if that, if that if you can't respond in joy and uh, uh, what He has graciously done for you, if I can do that for what Lee's done for me, I can certainly do it for what God's done for me. Jim, the majority of discipleship-type relationships, are they mostly initiated by the discipler or the disciplee? Well, I think most people will look for well, – it's hard to say. I mean, I've written on this both ways, and I, I've thought about it a lot. I, I think that, that, that a lot of times I get asked, well, you, would you disciple me? And that's, a, that's like one of the most fearful questions anyone can ever ask you, <laughs> right? Because, you, number one, you know that you can only do this with a few people. You cannot disciple. Right. A, that's why it's so important that all of us get in the game. We have a tendency to think, well, if you've got one pastor, then you've got, you got a discipler. Really, if he's got 300 people in his church, how is he going to do that? You need 300 disciples for 300 people. Really, I mean, to, to, to walk with you and do that well, that's really done best at one-on-one. You know, parents do a good job with kids, and it gets harder the more kids you have. So I just think if you, you – know, obviously, we're not going to be in a one-on-one setting all the time, but we need more disciples than just your lead pastor. So I think what typically happens is at some point you feel like, man, I need someone to help me with an issue. I need someone to help me become a better Christian, and disciples start looking for disciplers. As a matter of fact, I think culturally all of us do this, especially when we're not believers. You're not a believer, but I tell you what, you're looking to follow somebody. You're watching somebody on TV. Why do we so quickly get caught up in fads and follow what celebrities say? And what? Because we're all wired to look for the discipler. When in fact, it's, it's God is the discipler. Jesus is the discipler. So I think we're wired kind of innately in the image of God to, to, to seek um, that, that void. If we don't have God in our life, we'll, we'll look for somebody who we can follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that really when it comes down to it, it is that we have a duty as older Christians to be looking for someone to disciple because we can't, we can't be a one to one to three hundred ratio. We can't say it's only going to be pastoral staff that'll do this. Mm-hmm. Jim, if you were discipling me and I was a new believer, what might be a leading question you would ask me in our discipleship relationship? Well, it's 
it's all going to come down to what you what, what do you love and what do you submit to? Like, what do you love? What's what is it that's 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 that is guiding your thoughts? You know, it's about worldview, right? Every worldview asks those three questions. You know, how do we get here? Why is it so messed up? How do we fix it? <laughs> and so, in the end, we want to know. And everyone, every worldview answers those three questions. And so, Christianity also does. Um, so, I think what I'd want to know first is, like, you know, what do you? What is it that, that can? Like, as I'm looking at my life every day, like, where do I spend all my time? Like what is it that I'm I'm I've submitted to? Like what is it I'm a slave to? Um, and that's going to tell me something about what really matters to me. So rather than at first, I mean, at some point we're going to want to know like what do you, what are your views about God? I mean, we we do. Why do we have these creeds in the history of Christendom? Because the creeds are wonderful thumbnail summaries of what it is we believe Christianity teaches. Mm-hmm. So there are ways for us to remember like I, this is what I believe about X, Y, and Z. But in the end, it's your behaviors and what I watch you do will reveal more to me about where you are spiritually than probably anything you could tell me. So, for example, if you had on some of these folks who have fallen in the last year, Christians who have fallen in the last year, you could learn a lot more if, if they had their uh, phone cameras on all the time and you could watch that than you would from anything they would say on the stage. So a lot of that's going to be, you know, what what is it this control, what is it you've given your life to on a daily basis? That's going to give us a place to start. Yeah, great point. Jim Wallace is my guest. If you go to coldcasechristianity.com, you can learn all about uh, Jim, his books, his blogs, his videos, they're all Excellent. I practically insist you head over there and check it out. Coldcasechristianity.com. We'll take a short break. Be right back. So glad to have Jim Wallace on the program today. We're talking about discipleship. Listener just said, uh, what am I a slave to? Such a good question. How do we change our answers to that question? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of this is you can, you, you can, it's been said so many times, right? It's better, it's easier to act your way into feelings than to feel your way into action. <laughs> That's so true. Right? I mean, it's just true. So what you have to be able to do is say, okay, well, let me just assess where my time is going. You know, I, I think I told you before when I was looking at my, I can just, I sit in front of like, uh, new, I used to sit in front of sports shows with my wife, and I could pretty much say what they're going to say before they say it. And she would say to me, "What you know? You need to be on these shows." And she's not meaning that as a compliment; she's meaning that as a as a dig. She's saying like, "Why would you spend this much time focusing on this meaningless sports trivia?" Right? Mm-hmm. Because she knows that's time that could be spent someplace someplace else. And I have shifted that. So that was a conscious decision to say, okay, I, I if I've got if I've got twenty podcasts on my phone, and uh, you know, fifteen of those are sports shows, and the other you know five are have anything to do at all, even with apologetics or religion, you know, or or worldviews or religious worldviews or Christianity, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I probably have, have got to stop, you know, got to reassess. So it's it's not that hard to assess where your time is being spent and saying, okay, no. Like, what, what? how easy is it to change your disciplines when it comes to reading your Bible? The first thing you have to do is actually stop whatever else you're doing and start spending more time reading your Bible, right? So it's pretty easy to shift this. It's a decision. Um, but, you know, it's easier if you're in love with the idea. If you're in love with the decision, it's easy to make it, right? But the harder right. part for us is that sometimes we just don't want to make the change. Let's be honest. We like our lives the way they are. We'd rather go to sleep. I'd rather go watch something on TV for an hour. 
Um, you know, but when you're married to somebody though who's really good for you, it is easier because Susie's one of those people who will say, you know, let's let's do this instead. Um, and so if you've got somebody who's like-minded that way, together you probably can can avoid wasting a lot of time. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite Lewis quotes is, "What isn't eternal is eternally out of date." Yeah. And but I still, you know, I know you like sports and I like sports, so it's still pleasurable after a long day to turn on a game and watch an hour of it? No, there's no doubt, but I just think that, and that's true. I mean, I was telling Scott Hansen from the Red Zone, who's a friend of mine, I was telling him that, yeah, I mean, I, I record, during the football season, I used to record that sole seven hours of, of, of Red Zone, <laughs> and I'd watch it for the next three or four days, because I'd be mm-hmm. traveling on Sundays, so right. usually speaking at a church. And so I was just not watch the news until I completed the Red Zone, okay? Then I would watch the news. And I thought, you know, at some point, that's a bit obsessive, right? I mean, I mean this is what I'm saying. You, I'm going to give seven hours to this this week? Wow. I mean, you put it I mean, that seven, way. Think about it. I mean, it's not in the background, but well, seriously, you're going to give seven hours to this? Mm. How many awake hours of, of discretionary time do you think you have a week? You'd be, some people are lucky to have seven hours at all. Right. So at, at some point, you've got to ask yourself, okay, I mean, let's get real about this. Um, if you were to, have you ever had those notifications come up on your iPhone that says, hey, this week you spend an average of X amount of time each day on your iPhone? Oh, I, I think I have access to that, but I don't allow the notifications. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm the same way. You know, yeah. I don't want to know don't how much know stupid either. time I'm wasting on my phone. Yeah. But the reality of it is we are wasting a lot of time on our phone. Mm-hmm. Jim, as we talk about discipleship, I know Jesus lays out the terms of discipleship. You know, when crowds were following him, they loved the free food and the miracles and the healings. Mm-hmm. But what about counting the cost of following him? Yeah, that's something that I try to tell with the young people when I, when I, I think we need to expect uh, I think that, that there's a deception out there for many years, right? This, either it's a prosperity deceptions about what the gospel really is, or that you can get your best life now. If you're, it's, it's, I think honestly, everyone's ignored what Jesus said. Um, he said basically, this is going to be hard. It's going to be as hard for you as it was for me. You're going to suffer everything I suffered. He, he's gonna, he said, blessed are those. You know, he, he t- talks about this, right? Blessed are you. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, end of the Beatitudes, it's about the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, but end of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you when people do what? When they insult you and persecute you and falsely accuse you of all kinds of evil because of me. He says, that's what they're going to do. You gotta expect that they're going. This, you're not gonna have. You're not gonna get rich off this. You're not gonna be left alone off this. No, instead, you're gonna be insulted and falsely accused and persecuted, and then he says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Not your reward here. Yeah, that's what's, what's going to happen to you here is the insult and the falsely accused stuff, okay? Mm-hmm. Your reward is going to be where? In heaven, he says. And he says in the same way they they, they accused and, and persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I, I don't see where it is. Why is it so hard for us to understand that Jesus told us that we are going to be insulted and persecuted and falsely accused. That is that is fact. That is what he said is going to happen. And we are to look at that and rejoice. And you'll see this in the book of Acts, that all the disciples of Jesus who suffered for him rejoiced in the fact they got to suffer for him. Like yeah. they, You know what they said? And the reason why they were rejoicing? Because they were saying, oh, look, I'm now doing exactly what it is that Jesus said would happen. I'm now doing what he told me to do. I'm rejoicing and being glad because I know my reward in heaven is great. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that's part of it. We have to help young people to see that, hey, if you want this, this is what truth is. Truth is hard. Yeah. But wouldn't you rather live in the truth than in the lie that is convenient and profitable oh. and will make you popular in culture? you got a choice. Do you want to live in the truth? And by yeah. the way, this is a short time to be celebrating the lie. You're going to be popular for, let's say, let's say 95. So you're going to get 95 good years and then eternity? What's an eternity for you? You're supposed to do this now, which is not going to make you popular now, but you have eternity to be rewarded. For great is your reward in heaven. And that's, that's really where we got to, we got to be eternity-minded. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. Look, look, when they start taking your stuff, and they will, you know, you won't, you're, they'll start to limit your financial ability. They'll start to deplatform. They'll start to do all the things that they're going to do to us. And this is, it's coming. I really do believe it's coming. And it's subtle right now, but it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to happen. They're connecting Jesus to all the things that are inhibiting their, what they think are their, are their freedoms. So the moral teaching of Jesus is going to be less and less popular with every passing year. And anyone who holds to those moral teachings and refuses to accommodate the culture is going to be less and less popular. Mm-hmm. And so our young people need to know that 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 this is this is uh, the prediction from Jesus was that not that you're going to win the culture over eventually. No, it's that we're going to win in the end. Okay, right. not now. <laughs> yeah. You know, so so what he said is going to happen to us now is that we're going to be falsely accused yeah. and insulted and persecuted. Yeah. So yeah. I think we, we ought to be able to say, okay, I'm actually, I'm ready to do that. I'm, I'm okay with that because yeah. my future is in heaven. Yeah, what you said is disturbing, of course. But in today's world, uh, in your work with apologetics, what, what would you say are some of the biggest roadblocks to the gospel message? Well, I think that where you are now are there all the, the whatever the hot button issues. I mean, it's so amazing. It turns out the gospel is the solution for race. Right. It's the solution <laughs> for all these things, right? But. Yeah. But there's a sense in which you hold this prejudicial uh, belief against my sexual identity or my sexual preference or my sexual behavior or my view of the sanctity of life or my view related to race, and you hold all these these negative views because you're a Christian. That's that's where we're going to be, I think, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest objections to Christianity will be that they are inhibiting everyone's desire to behave the way they want to behave uh, and do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Very thoughtful question from a listener I'd like to share. She said, I used to do uh, missions trips to Haiti regularly. I did 13. Now I'm married with two little kids, so I'm busy. I can hardly even sleep. I feel a lot of guilt for not being able to serve or be involved in discipleship because I'm serving my family. Are there creative ways that you know of to be involved in serving or discipleship? Well, there are, but let me just say this. What what you're doing is more important than anything else you could be doing. <laughs> Agreed. You, you were in a season now, life's full of seasons, and you had a season in which you didn't have kids in which you could do all those other things. Now you have kids. Your first responsibility is your marriage. And guess what? The marriage, your marriage preaches the gospel. It preaches. Your marriage preaches. Don't think it doesn't. It preaches the gospel to your kids, number one. And the best thing you can do is make sure you, if you win two people for Christ, but you lose your two kids, have you done anything really? <laughs> So it turns out the, the first two people you want to win for Christ are your own kids, and and so so you you and and that, as they watch you and the, the kind of marriage you live, you know my wife and I we dance uh, and we started dancing after our kids grew up and moved out of the house and I'm talking about like formal like ballroom dancing right, and the reason why is because it's an excellent picture of marriage, 
You know, the whole picture is that I lead. She has no idea where I'm going in the dance until I lead her. Mm-hmm. And she has to take the cues. But every single move uh, celebrates her. In other words, she's the center of – she's the star. She does all the turns and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't do the turn. I'm just holding the hand, right? But, I, but she doesn't <laughs> know she's going to do the turn until I turn her. So in other words, it turns out that, mar- that, that the dancing kind of like can preach marriage. Yeah, well, marriage preaches the relationship we have with God. Um, you know, you're to love not your job and your, your your radio show and your next project, your next book, the way that Christ loves the church. You're to love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. Mm-hmm. It turns out it's a picture of how Christ loves the church, and marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and His church. And there's a sense in which if you do this well, this is why I think so many young people either. Uh, struggle with their relationship with God or, or easily uh, enter into a relationship with God, a lot of it is, well, what was their relationship like with their own dad? Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine a loving father if you don't have a, an, an eternal loving father, if you don't have a temporal loving father. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which a good marriage does so much. And so while you're in this season right now of raising kids, um, this is just remember, what you do as a parent preaches, and what you do as a spouse preaches. And you don't need to worry about any other stuff, but your mission field is in your own home until those kids are on their own. And then guess what? Our kids are gone now. You'll have a great opportunity to do all that other stuff again. Yeah. Jim, I got a bunch of uh, messages during the show just from listeners saying how much they enjoy listening to you. So I know you have got a very busy schedule and you've taken time to be on the program today. So I'm just very grateful. Oh, I'm so, I'm just grateful you keep on calling. Oh, no, no, <laughs> so, I, I love so having you on. Do. Yeah, yeah, I will. Glad to do it. So I'll talk to you again hopefully soon, and uh, yeah. uh, continued blessings on your book, and I'll be praying for you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Be safe. Yep. Okay. Yep. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. Thanks to you guys for the guy talk and for Jim coming on, making the show excellent. If you missed any of it, go to myfaithradio.com. You can go to the Afternoon with Bill show page and start right from the beginning. If you missed anything... Have a great night, everyone. I'm already excited for our next time together tomorrow. Look forward to it. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.